Good morning. My name is Ken Delage. If I haven't had the privilege to meet you, maybe you're a guest here this morning. Thank you for being with us uh, on a morning when perhaps we would have been snowed out. It's wonderful uh, that, we, that we weren't. Open your Bibles, if you would, to Matthew chapter 22. So the year was 1820. Retired from the presidency for the past 10 years, Thomas Jefferson sat alone at Monticello. He was hunched over his desk with an open Bible in front of him and a knife in his hand. And he took the Bible and he began to cut passages from the Scripture. Some of the passages he took and he arranged and rearranged on fresh pieces of paper and other passages found their way to the floor, a growing heap of discarded text. The result of his work is known as the Jefferson Bible. It was never published in his time, but it has since been published. I actually have a copy of it in my hand. It's straight from the Library of Congress. They took, I guess, photocopies of it, and you can actually see in here the the cut marks that were made by Jefferson, the little notes by his hand, the smudges of paste that he used to put his Bible together. See, Jefferson was a deist. A deist is one who believes in what we might call a, a clockmaker God. So think about a clockmaker, right? What does a clockmaker do? They spend a lot of time making clocks, then they wind it up and they let it do its own thing. Clockmakers don't tend to, you know, keep up with all of their clocks throughout the life of their clock. They just, they make the clock and they let it go. Tick tock, tick tock. And that's the kind of God that Jefferson believed in. That's what deism is. It believes in a, a clockmaker God who, yes, created the world, wound it up, did it with care, created natural law so that it would govern itself, and then allowed it to run. And so since that is the God in whom he believed, he opened his Bible and conformed his Bible to his beliefs. The deist's God is so distant as to be irrelevant. All that is, is what we can see. And all that we see is all that there is. Today, we're going to be considering the words of Jesus in Matthew 22 as he confronts the deists of his day. They're called the Sadducees. And while I don't think anybody in here would call themselves a deist, and many, we didn't even know what that meant, we are all tempted by the lies that they proclaim. And so let us hear the words of Christ afresh as though... God, we're speaking to us this morning because he is through his word. So Matthew 22, we'll begin in verse 23 together. The same day, Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So to the second and third, 
down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered them, you are wrong, because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. God's word. So the Sadducees come up to Jesus. It's their turn. If you've been following along in the series or in the chapter, the Pharisees have come up several times in a row to test Jesus, and he's beaten them back each time. And so now it's the rival party. It's their turn to come and test Jesus. It's the Sadducees who step up to the plate. They are the the deists of the day. They believe in a clockmaker God, a God who created, but who is now so distant from his creation as to be irrelevant. And like Jefferson, they had trimmed their Bibles. So they were alone among the Jews as only accepting the first five books of the Old Testament. They only accepted as as truth what Moses had written in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They believed that all that is is what they could see, and what they could see is all that there is. They are best known, as the text says, for not believing in the resurrection. That's how distant God is. There is no afterlife. There's nothing to look forward to. What a hopeless outlook, really. No eternity with God. The Sadducees don't believe in a resurrection. That's why they are sad, you see? It's just hard to give up on corny dad jokes. I'm sorry. What are you going to do? So they present a kind of parable to Jesus. Normally, Jesus is the one telling parables, right? But now they tell him a parable, and it's a parable designed to make him look like a fool, to make him look stupid. How preposterous to believe in an afterlife. Are you kidding? It makes no sense whatsoever. And so they they present this parable. And first, they remind Jesus of the law. So let me remind us that under the Old Testament, if a man married and then subsequently died, it was the responsibility of that man's brother to then marry that woman, to have kids, raise them up, to be uh, the inheritors of the dead brother's possessions. This is how it was done in the Old Testament. It was his responsibility. And so they present this kind of ridiculous situation where a man has, is one of seven brothers, and so the first one marries and dies, the next one marries and dies, on and on and on. I tell you what, if I was brother number six, I'd be careful about what I was eating for dinner. At some point, what is going on? <laughs> And of course, the premise of their whole picture is this, that marriage designed by God is between only one man and one woman. And so since she was married to seven men, how does that work? 
in the afterlife. It's, 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 it, it goes against God's design for marriage. And so they ask Jesus, so Jesus, whose wife will she be? Verse 29, Jesus does not answer their question, whose wife will she be? He simply begins this, you are wrong. You are wrong. He doesn't begin by answering the question. He begins by cleaning up the mess that they have made in all their assumptions about the question. You're wrong. You're off. You've, you've missed the mark like a person with a, a bow and arrow, just wide of the mark. You're wrong because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. Now, to tell the Sadducees that they don't know the Scriptures is insulting. This is what they did for a living, was study the Scriptures. They built their lives on the Scriptures, their worldviews on the Scriptures, their sense of themselves were built on their study of the Scripture. Yet for all that time, Jesus declares, they don't know them. See, the heart that approaches God's Word with razor in hand will never know God's Word. Either the Scriptures are approached with a kind of humility that says, God, change me. Or they are approached with the attitude that says, I'll change it. And that's where they were. Snip, snip, cut, cut. They don't know the Scriptures and they don't know the power of God. They have denied God's power in all in all things except creation, in all things that matter, they have denied that God is, in fact, God, present, active, governing, sovereign, providential. He says, you might have an open Bible, but you have a closed mind to God. You know, the, the Jewish people wear the kind of yarmulke on their head. That You've got a yarmulke on your head, but a secular mind beneath it. You think like one that knows nothing of God. You are wrong, he says. Okay, so now in verse 30, Jesus is going to make short work of their parable. All right, he's going to do this in one verse, and this really focuses on uh, a kind of unique topic in Scripture, that is the topic of marriage and heaven. All right, so let's, let's look at verse 30 as he deals with the parable they gave to him. He says, For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. It says they're like angels in heaven in that they are neither married nor given in marriage. So it doesn't mean that, that we become like angels in every respect. He's being very specific what, it, what he means here. It means that in the sense that angels do not marry and do not reproduce in heaven, they are eternal beings. There's no need for reproduction amongst the angels so will it be with God's people as we are gathered to Him in eternity. So there will be no marriage in heaven. Christ is clear on this. And I think for some, perhaps some with really good marriages, this comes as a kind of a disappointment, you know? This, this reality that we will not be married to our spouses in heaven. There can be a sense of loss to that, but but I want to point to what Jesus is really saying because he, he's not saying there won't be love in heaven. Not at all. That's 
the opposite of heaven, right? There's going to be perfect love in heaven. He is saying that there will not be exclusive marriage between individuals in heaven. Now, we know from other places in Scripture, there will be one marriage in heaven, right? Between Christ and his people. One marriage. That's what today's marriages imperfectly point towards, is that exclusive relationship that Christ will have with his people. Lord, speed the day for that. But amongst us, marriages will cease, but love will abound in heaven. Sin will be gone. No more barrier of sin between us. So I do not think it's right for us to look at this and to kind of think, all right, every marriage is going to kind of be flattened down to a kind of common uh, relationship, a kind of common acquaintance amongst everyone. I think rather that we can look forward to the day that for every believer, every relationship will be elevated up to the level of closeness and love and care that on earth was only shown in marriage. That sounds like heaven. That's, that's exciting to consider and gives hope to all of us for that day. But I think it's probably right for me to exercise a little preacher's humility with this, because when Jesus says that we're going to be like angels in heaven, I think it would be good for me and maybe you to admit, I don't know exactly what that means to be an angel in heaven, having never been there or been one, right? And I think that's part of his point. He's, he's teaching a little bit, but he's leaving the rest off limits. So when Jesus stops teaching, I should too. All right, so now on to verses 31 and 32. And here, Jesus addresses the bigger problem in their argument. Their argument was not really about marriage to start with. It was really about the resurrection, and it was really about God. That was really what they were, were talking about. And so Jesus gets the axe out and takes the axe to the root of the clockmaker God tree. In verses 31 and 32, he says, And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. Okay, now, notice what Jesus does. First, he quotes from Exodus, one of the five books they acknowledge. So he goes to prove to them that in the, the limited bit of Scripture that they're willing to accept, they're still wrong. Right, so he quotes from Exodus, and this is the encounter that Moses has. Do you remember when Moses goes to the burning bush? God says, take your shoes off, for the ground on which you're standing is holy ground. Then God identifies himself as the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. So that's what Jesus is, is quoting here. And I, and I want us to follow his, his argument, because what he's arguing is that there is a resurrection. You can know that from the Old Testament. And that these verses prove that there's a resurrection. What he's arguing here is that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are still alive. Now, as we look at it, many people have thought that, that he's using the kind of verb tense here to prove it. He says, I am the God of Abraham, rather than I was the God of Abraham, indicating that Abraham's still alive. I think the conclusion is right. Abraham is still alive. I don't think that was the argument Jesus was making. I don't, I don't think he was hanging it all on a verb. I think it's more wonderful than that in a little deeper. 
than that. I think this is what, this is Jesus' interpretation of what is going on. When God says, I am the God of Abraham, he's saying, I am the God who, who covenanted with Abraham, who entered into a covenant relationship. Abraham, a, a, a human being, a mere mortal, a fallible man, entered into covenant with me, the living God. So it was also with Isaac and again with Jacob. Each of them, though mortal. Each of them, though sinful. Each of them, though, though finite, entered into a covenant with me, and I have yet to break that covenant with them. God is such a God that once he enters into covenant with a person, he keeps the person in the covenant. Do you see what this says? He keeps them in covenant with him, regardless of their sin, regardless of their failing, regardless of their mortality. He keeps them in covenant with him because he will not break covenant with those that he's covenanted with. This is remarkable teaching that Jesus is giving. He's saying once you're in relationship with God, God's going to keep you in that even if he has to keep you alive past your own mortality. That's what he, he's hinging this on the character of God. The promise keeping, covenant keeping, Nature of God is once I'm in relationship with someone, I keep it. When I make a promise, it's not broken by their sin, by their failings, by their weakness, by their walking away. I'll just pull them back. By their death, I'm just going to raise them up. That's who God is. The covenant that God makes with people is strong. It is stronger than their weakness, stronger than their sin, and even stronger than their death. That's why God says, I am the God of Abraham. Because when he said this, he still was at that very moment in covenant relationship with Abraham. Which of course requires that Abraham still exist and be alive. God is not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. Now, that's not to be misunderstood. God is, God is the God of everyone who's alive and everyone who's dead in the common use of those terms. Right, In that sense, he's the God of the dead and of the living. But what, what Jesus is saying here is that all those who've ever come into relationship with God are not dead, but living. And God is their God. He is the God of the living. Which, of course, means he is no clockmaker God. Distant, unengaged, wind it up and say goodbye. He's the God of the living. He's the one who, who keeps his people. This is contained right here is the remarkable truth that every human being who's ever trusted in Christ from the apostles to today, whether they've died or not, are alive in Christ. They are living in the truest. This also means that in the Old Covenant, Every person that trusted in that covenant 
keeping God, be it Abraham or Isaac or Jacob or their descendants or David or Isaiah or you name it, they're still alive. They're still in relationship with their God, kept by the power of the living God. That's some great news. That's some wonderful news. This is, remember how Jesus said that they don't know the power of God? This is the power of God that he's talking about right here. The power of God to to keep us. When once God enters into covenant with a mortal, their mortality is subsumed by his immortality. And they become immortal on the basis of covenant with the God who is the living God. We serve no wind up and let it go, God. We serve a God who is present, a God who is active, a God who is powerful. So, church, let us cast off our low thoughts of God. The lies of the deist can percolate into our heart and mind. It's not... How would you answer the question on a Sunday school quiz? As though we give quizzes in Sunday school. We don't, but if we did. This is not, not how we would answer the question if even in conversation with someone else or even necessarily if we were to think about it ourselves. It's how we answer the question in our deepest level of belief as we walk through the day. Do you serve the living God? Do you serve a God who's present who's active, who's covenanted with you in Jesus Christ, who will never let you go, not even through the grave. But he will keep you, and he will keep you, and he will keep you. Let me ask you, what would your life look like if you believed that? What would change? If you knew that God himself was present, active, there, with you, moment by moment by moment. That he was not this caricature of a clockmaker, but he's the reality of a shepherd with his sheep, moment by moment. I think there are two things that would mark a believer. God willing will increasingly mark your life and increasingly mark my life as this truth settles into our soul and God help it settle into our soul. These two things are prayer and praise. Prayer and praise. I think of this like the breathing of a Christian. All right? Prayer. We're breathing in. I need I need, I need praise. I'm breathing out. You gave. I have. Thank you. So, so prayer, I, I need God. I, I need you. I depend on you. I look to you right now. You are the present one. You're the active one. You're the powerful one. Meet my need. And then praise. I have. Oh God, thank you for meeting me. Thank you for providing what I asked for. Every good and perfect gift is from above. It's come from you. Thank you for this meal. 
Thank you for this morning. Thank you for this marriage. Thank you for this friendship. Thank you for this health. Thank you for this job. Thank you for this church service. Thank you for the safe ride to work this morning. Thank you for my family. Thank you. As soon as we're done breathing out, what do we have to do again? Got to breathe in again. Oh, but I still have needs, Lord. I still have needs. God, fill me this morning. Provide the money for this. Provide the patience to deal with this. The discipline to walk through this situation. Provide the power. Provide the forgiveness that I so need right now. The mercy. Lord, give me the boldness to proclaim you as I ought to. Give me the health in the midst of this pandemic. Lord, give me what I, give us this day our daily bread. I need you. And thank you. Because again, you provided. Again, I have what I need. God, you are so good. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Your mercies never come to an end. They're new to me every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Lord, I worship you. Breathing in and breathing out and breathing in and breathing out and breathing in and breathing out because he's right there. Philippians chapter 4, verse 5 speaks of this. It begins with these wonderful words, the Lord is at hand. The Lord is at hand. Think about at hand. He is by your elbow, right there. He is at hand. Not the clockmaker, the shepherd, right there with you. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. The Lord is at hand. So what do we do? We pray with thanksgiving. We pray with thanksgiving. We pray with thanksgiving. But we give our prayer to you and we give our praise to you over and over the breath of the Christian life. Oh, what hope there is for those who know the living God. There are some here who perhaps you would say you don't know him. Perhaps you would say you're not sure if you know him. Know how to know him. Scripture says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And you will know him. So friend, what, is, what does that look like? It means look to God and ask him to forgive you for your sins. But pastor, you say, I, I hear you say that, and I heard Jim's wonderful testimony this morning. I'm, I'm not aware of my sin. I, I don't see things that I need to confess of. Then, friend, if that's you, then ask him to show you your sin. Will. But, Pastor, I, I, I see my sin, but I, I don't want to ask for forgiveness. I don't want to ask God for that. Then, friend, go to God and ask for the desire to ask for forgiveness. Ask him for, for the want to ask for forgiveness. But, but pastor, I don't even want to pray. I'm, I'm angry at this God. Then, then ask God for the heart to pray if you have not the heart to pray. But I, I don't even want to humble myself before him. 
then ask for such humility. But I don't even, I'm not even sure if he exists, then ask him to show you if he exists. But pastor, I'm sure he doesn't exist. Then ask in the dark that he would open your eyes if he does exist. But pastor, I'm too way down in my sin, I can't even take the first step towards him. Then ask him to take the first step. Maybe you're worried you wouldn't ask correctly. Then ask him to make your words right. Maybe you're worried that you wouldn't ask with a full heart. Then ask him to give you the full heart. Maybe you're worried that you'd ask today and, and you'd turn back on it tomorrow. Then ask him to help you not turn back tomorrow. Friend, you're right. You would turn back tomorrow apart from the power of God to keep you. And he is enough to keep you if only you ask. If only you look to him. Look to him today, wherever you're at. Maybe you've been far from God for a long time. Just ask for him. Just look to him. He is our present God. Saints, what hope is ours? What hope is ours in the God who is called the living God? He's the living God. That is, life is inherent to him. It is his in himself. He needs no battery, no motor, no fuel, no sustenance, no help, no creator. He is life in and of himself, the living God. And he's the God of the living, which is to say he takes the life within him and gives it to all who are in relationship with him. Praise God for that. What hope we have in him. In a few minutes, we're going to take communion together. And this will be another opportunity for us to partake of God to partake of the Lord, to expect that he is going to meet us as we distribute the elements and as we take these things together. It's an act of humility, right? As we receive what we don't have on our own, we receive it. It's an act of his graciousness to give us the life that we need, forgiveness of our sins and eternal life with God.